Hey everybody, welcome to another episode from the Evangelicals. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Jeremy. And this is episode 10. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas. We are having some fun today. We're talking about some of our favorite Christmas songs. We're going to sing them and talk about them and then talk about some things that matter today. But we hope that all of you who are listening, uh, that you sense the peace of Christ this Christmas. So hope you have as much fun today as we do. third verse of O Holy Night. And uh, this one is a favorite of mine um, for many reasons. One, it was my my Nana's favorite Christmas carol. And I remember her always wanting, when I was growing up, to play it on the piano for her or sing it or, or um, always wanting to do it in church. But another reason is is just the story behind it. Um, so this, this was written. There was a, it was written in France and there was a I guess that the story goes there was a new organ being placed in a church and the pastor wanted a song to kind of commemorate or to celebrate this um, accomplishment, this uh, event. And so he commissioned a, a local poet who, I, I, they don't, I'm not even sure he was a Christian. He, he owned a wine business, um, but he was a, a poet in the, in the town. So he commissioned him to write some lyrics to kind of commemorate this um, event. Um, so he wrote it. And then uh, needed somebody to put it to music, so they found a Jewish guy to actually write the music for this Christian. The thing is, the Jews have been making so much money on Christians <laughs> at Christmas time for years. I mean, let's just talk about Kenny G for a second. You yeah, know, exactly. Hilarious. So, um, so they wrote it. Uh, obviously, it was well loved. Um, it was very much appreciated. Well, then controversy struck. 
um, the guy that wrote it actually started taking on this understanding of communism, the ideology of communism. Um, and then they realized that the guy who wrote the music wasn't even a Christian. And so it was banned from being played in the church in France and just banned from being sung because, once again, the author was had turned communist and the, the guy who wrote the music wasn't even, uh, he was a Jewish guy. Um but the French people loved it so much, they still would sing it uh, in the community and still sing it uh, throughout the town because it was such a loved hymn. Um, well, then it made its way to America uh, during the Civil War, especially in, in the North, uh, that line that was sung, um, chains shall he break for the slave is our brother. And so uh, during the Civil War uh, in the North, it was sung a lot. And uh, the guy could just relate, or related to that lyric especially, um, because of what was happening during our, our country at the time. Uh, and, and there's a lot of other crazy stories that go along with the hymn. I like it, especially uh, when it gets to that third chorus, Christ is the Lord, oh, praise his name forever, his power and glory forevermore proclaim. And I think as Christians, as evangelicals, that's something that during the season of Advent and this Christmas season uh, that we need to do more of. Uh, it reminds me of the Hallelujah Chorus, and especially there was a video several years ago of one of those flash mobs. I guess it was a flash chorus. It wasn't a yeah. dance where they were in the mall, the shopping center, and uh-huh. the food court, and and they started singing. And, and it was just a picture to me of how at all times the kingdom is breaking out in our midst, even when we least expect it. And so uh, this, this carol for me, once again, is just a, a reminder of... In the kingdom, slaves are brothers. Uh, there's no difference between um, people uh, or skin color or socioeconomic race, um, but we're all gathering together proclaiming Christ as the Lord. And um, and so it's just a good reminder for me that that's what we are to be about, not just during the Christmas season, but hopefully year-round, which make, begs a question. Maybe you can answer this. I don't know. I was, I was thinking about the other day. We sing all other... Christian songs year round. Why is it that it's so weird if you were to sing Joy to the World or something in July that it would be a weird thing? Um, because it seems like it's a it's an odd practice that we can't sing Christmas carols year round. Well, I think that part of that is because of our theological priority. I think that we have minimized the role of the incarnation of Christ coming to us and we have prioritized the atonement. So the thing that we sing all year all year long are the songs about Christ's blood and his dying for us. We are obsessed with the death of Christ and we, you know, we kind of romanticize the birth of Christ, especially at Christmas time. But in my personal opinion, the the birth of Christ is um a lot more important than the death of Christ. I'm not saying more important than the resurrection. Right. I'm saying than the death of Christ. Uh and um I think that we, you know, that's probably why in the church we sing more atonement songs all year long is because we have learned, especially as Protestants, to really celebrate the atonement throughout the year and Christ's passion, but don't really know what to do with God becoming human. And maybe that, maybe that also that speaks to some of our lack in our understanding of and appreciation for the incarnation and why maybe we should sing these songs and celebrate this season more throughout the year. We take the fourth verse of Joy to the World. How 
how much more, especially in our culture, do we need to sing the words, he rules the world with truth and grace? I mean, how, to me, that's appropriate all the time, <laughs> not just around Christmas time, that, that, that we as a people need to be reminded that he rules the world with truth and with grace and lets the nations prove the glories, you know? And, and But like I said, we... It would be odd, I think. I think our people in, in our congregations would think, why are we singing yeah. Joy to the World in June? Because, what, and which I found out, it was written based on a psalm, not even on the birth of Jesus, of this celebration of the fact that, that we believe that God is the one who reigns and that we should be joyful about that all the time. Well, I don't know that there is a lyric in that song that definitely points to the nativity or the birth in any decisive way. It really is just a radical proclamation of what happens when Christ comes, when God does reign, you know? Yeah. So just to end, I don't know, I was just thinking about the other day, why can we sing? We can even sing resurrection songs. Obviously, Sunday is always to be a celebration of the resurrection. Sure. But it's interesting that once again, nobody would look at you strange if you sang, you know, because he lives in November, but they would look at you strange if you sang Joy to the World in August. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Just something to think about. That's a great point, Jeremy. Something something interesting that just, you know, my the way my weird mind works. <laughs> so Jonathan, what's your favorite Christmas carol? This is my favorite Christmas carol, but honestly, this also might be my favorite song of all time. I love A Little Town of Bethlehem. I'm gonna play the first verse. Oh little town of Bethlehem, how still we see the light. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep The silent stars go by Yet in thy dark streets Shineth the everlasting light The hopes and fears of all the years Are met in thee tonight. The reason that this is probably my favorite song is, as I said earlier, I don't know that we emphasize the importance of the incarnation enough in our theology. And I think that this song just captures the essence of what was happening when Christ came into the world so, so beautifully and so perfectly. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. This idea that when Christ comes to earth, when God is made human, everyone just sleeps through it. Yeah. They don't even notice it. Yeah. They don't even recognize it. And there's a humility to this song, the way that the chords and lyrics are put together so beautifully, that I think uh, there's also this sense of prosody, that the the music matches the words, the spirit of the song so perfectly. Uh, The last verse then is kind of the essence to me of the soteriology of the song or the significance of the theology for our salvation. And it's the idea that um, the the words are, how silently, how silently the wondrous given, the gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessing of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. It's the idea that um, Christ comes to the humble 
Christ comes to the meek. And I don't know that our culture esteems humility and meekness at all. But we ought to remember, especially at Christmas time, that the Spirit of Christ, and especially the infant Christ, is one of complete meekness and humility. It's, this is just a song that always humbles me. It always makes me pause every time I hear it or every time I sing it. It reminds me always when we sing it of um, kind of a newer Christmas song, but the Chris Rice, Welcome to Our World. Oh, yeah. The line, so wrap our injured flesh around you, breathe our air and walk our sod, rob our sin and make us holy, perfect son of God. That's one of the most beautifully written songs of all time, I would say. That's beautiful. But when I sing that, I think in, there's a line in the the third verse that talks about hope or talks about coming and taking our sin. And, and yeah, it's just a beautiful... Christmas carols as a musician are some of the hardest songs to play, but some of the most beautiful songs when you realize how how they're put together and structured. Um, but yeah, the Old Little Town of Bethlehem is just a, a peaceful reminder that the world, when Christ was born, was missed, or they missed it. And it was funny because I read an article about Old Holy Night, which was the song I sang earlier, and how it really wasn't this big holy night uh, that that uh, I think it was irrelevant. That talked about how it wasn't a really biblical song because it wasn't this big announcement. And sometimes that song has very um, kind of pomp and circumstance when we sing "O Holy Night," and it can, yeah. can kind of be antithetical to what actually happened. But I think when I think of "O Holy Night" and "O Little Town" and and all of them, you know, even "Silent Night" and some of them, that it wasn't necessarily. Um, what was taking place as much as it was, it's, a, it's an announcement, it's a pronouncement of the significance of the night for us. And obviously they missed it at the time. There wasn't a whole lot. Shepherds came. Um, but I think for us today, it's a recognition of the significance of the incarnation of, of spirit becoming flesh and blood and, and moving into the neighborhood for us. For me, something that's also significant about Christmas songs, like you said, the lyrics and the chord structures for Christmas songs are complex. They're difficult. Yeah. There's a lot of jazz in them. And I think theologically that's very appropriate, just in the sense that I, I really do believe that music is a language of God. Sure. I mean, God could have created the world without music, and it would still be functional. It could still have plenty of utility. But he chose to give us music. And I love it that we use music at Christmas time. Yeah as our human way to tell the story of God coming to us. And that would be my pitch for the necessity of Christmas music forever. I don't know that there's a better way for us to try to get that idea right, the idea of the miracle of God coming to us, of him taking on our flesh, of him redeeming us, of him fighting all odds to reconcile with us just using using music and lyric and chord to do that i just think it's i think it's the perfect way to celebrate the incarnation and this is one of the reasons i just love christmas music yeah there's some things that can't be explained and the only way to attempt to explain them is through poetry and through lyric and so i think that's exactly right and and you know when you're saying you know the opening passage of the Bible as a creation hymn, the creation yeah. song. And I think C.S. Lewis really paints that beautiful picture. And um, I think it's in The Magician's Nephew, when Aslan is creating the world, this lion is singing a song and, and creation happens. And uh, once again, just a beautiful picture that the way the world was birthed through, was through a hymn. And um, 
And so what better way, once again, as you said, to 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 celebrate the fact of God coming and being created as a, a human being? Uh, what a better way. There's no better way to celebrate and to remember than, than through song, for sure. So we, we celebrate, once again, the incarnation. We celebrate the fact that God became flesh and blood. But it doesn't mean that the world is as he wants it to be. That, that doesn't mean that, that there aren't people who are, are suffering. There aren't people who are under oppression still. That's exactly right. And so um, the song that, that I, we talked about, O Holy Night, it was interesting that they banned the song from church because the author... Uh, started living in ideologies uh, that related to communism. And there's a story that that probably isn't going to get a whole lot of press on the major media news outlets, but it's one that Jonathan found an article on about a pastor in China who's living under a communist regime uh, in a communist country. And uh, we, we wanted to bring this story to light because I think that in our season it's good to, to to remember and understand that God is still at work, but also there are still people who are are under oppression of governments and empires. And uh, so, Jonathan, you want to intro the article a little bit? Yeah, this is really kind of an incredible story, and different people are picking it up and covering it. But apparently, this pastor back in September in China wrote a letter foreseeing that he might be arrested for his resistance, whatever form that looks like, to the Chinese government. And sure enough, last week or so, he was arrested. And 48 hours after he was arrested and he disappeared and his house was ransacked, people in his congregation released this letter that he had written for the Church of China and essentially what has become for the entire world and the Christian world. So I want to begin, begin reading. This is a letter from Pastor... Wang Yi in China. This is called My Declaration of Faithful Disobedience. On the basis of the teaching of the Bible and the mission of the gospel, I respect the authorities God has established in China. For God disposes kings and raises up kings. This is why I submit to the historical and institutional arrangement of God in China. As a pastor of a Christian church, I have my own understanding and views based on the Bible about what righteous order and good government is. At the same time, I am filled with anger and disgust at the persecution of the church by this communist regime, at the wickedness of their depriving people of the freedoms of religion and of conscience. But changing social and political institutions is not the mission I have been called to, and it is not the goal for which God has given his people the gospel. For all hideous realities, unrighteous politics, and arbitrary laws manifest the cross of Jesus Christ the only means by which every Chinese person must be saved. They also manifest the fact that true hope and a perfect society will never be found in the transformation of any earthly institution or culture, but only in our sins being freely forgiven by Christ and in the hope of eternal life. As a pastor, my firm belief in the gospel, my teaching, and my rebuking of all evil proceeds from Christ's command in the gospel— and from the unfathomable love of that glorious King. Every man's life is extremely short, and God fervently commands the church to lead and call any man to repentance who is willing to repent. Christ is eager and willing to forgive all who turn from their sins. 
This is the goal of all the efforts of the church in China, to testify to the world about our Christ, to testify to the middle kingdom about the kingdom of heaven, to testify to earthly momentary lives about heavenly eternal life. This is also the pastoral calling that I have received. For this reason, I accept and respect the fact that this communist regime has been allowed by God to rule temporarily. As the Lord's servant John Calvin, Calvin said, wicked rulers are the judgment of God on a wicked people, the goal being to urge God's people to repent and turn again toward him. For this reason, I am joyfully willing to submit myself to their enforcement of the law as though submitting to the discipline and training of the Lord. At the same time, I believe that this communist regime's persecution against the church is a greatly wicked, unlawful action. As a pastor of a Christian church, I must denounce this wickedness openly and severely. The calling that I have received requires me to use nonviolent methods to disobey those human laws that disobey the Bible and God. My Savior Christ also requires me to joyfully bear all costs for disobeying wicked laws. But this does not mean that my personal disobedience and the disobedience of the church is in any sense fighting for rights or political activism in the form of civil disobedience, because I do not have the intention of changing any institution or laws of China. As a pastor, the only thing I care about is the disruption of man's sinful nature by this faithful disobedience and the testimony it bears for the cross of Christ. As a pastor, my disobedience is one part of the gospel commission. Christ's great commission requires of us great disobedience. The goal of disobedience is not to change the world, but to testify about another world. For the mission of the church is only to be the church and not to become a part of any secular institution. From a negative perspective, the church must separate itself from the world and keep itself from being institutionalized by the world. From a positive perspective, all acts of the church are attempts to prove to the world the real existence of another world. The Bible teaches us that teaches us that in all matters relating to the gospel and human conscience, we must obey God and not men. For this reason, spiritual disobedience and bodily suffering are both ways we testify to another eternal world and to another glorious king. This is why I am not interested in changing any political or legal institutions in China. I'm not even interested in the question of when the communist regime's policies persecuting the church will change. Regardless of which regime I live under now or in the future, as long as the secular government continues to persecute the church, violating human consciences that belong to God alone, I will continue my faithful disobedience. For the entire commission God has given me is to let more Chinese people know through my actions that the hope of humanity and society is only in the redemption of Christ, in the supernatural, gracious sovereignty of God. If God decides to use the persecution of this communist regime against the church to help more Chinese people to despair of their futures, to lead them through a wilderness of spiritual disillusionment, and through, and through this to make them know Jesus, if through this he continues discipling and building up his church, then I am joyfully willing to submit to God's plan, for his plans are always benevolent and good. Precisely because none of my words and actions are directed towards seeking and hoping for societal and political transformation, I have no fear of any social or political power. For the Bible teaches us that God establishes governmental authorities in order to terrorize evildoers, 
not to terrorize doers of good. If believers in Jesus do no wrong, then they should not be afraid of dark powers. Even though I am often weak, I firmly believe this is the promise of the gospel. It is what I've devoted all my energy to. It is the good news that I am spreading throughout Chinese society. I also understand that this happens to be the very reason why the communist regime is filled with fear at a church that is no longer afraid of it. If I am imprisoned for a long or short period of time, if I can help reduce the authorities' fear of my faith and of my Savior, I am very joyfully willing to help them in this way. But I know that only when I renounce all the wickedness of this persecution against the church and use peaceful means to disobey, will I truly be able to help the souls of the authorities and law enforcement. I hope God uses me by means of first losing my personal freedom to tell those who have deprived me of my personal freedom that there is an authority higher than their authority and that there is a freedom that they cannot restrain, a freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. Regardless of what crime the government charges me with, whatever filth filth they fling at me, as long as this charge is related to my faith, my writings, my comments, and my teachings, it is merely a lie and temptation of demons. I categorically deny it. I will serve my sentence, but I will not serve the law. I will be executed, but I will not plead guilty." Moreover, I must point out that persecution against the Lord's church and against all Chinese people who believe in Jesus Christ is the most wicked and the most horrendous evil of Chinese society. This is not only a sin against Christians, it is also a sin against all non-Christians, for the government is brutally and ruthlessly threatening them and hindering them from coming to Jesus. There is no greater wickedness in the world than this. If this regime is one day overthrown by God, it will be for no other reason than God's righteous punishment and revenge for this evil. For on earth, there has only ever been a thousand-year church. There has never been a thousand-year government. There is only eternal faith. There is no eternal power. Those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief toward those who are attempting to and actively imprisoning me. Pray that the Lord would use me, that he would grant me patience and wisdom that I might take the gospel to them. Separate me from my wife and children, ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. No one can make me change my life and no one can raise me from the dead. And so, respectable officers, stop committing evil. This is not for my benefit, but rather for yours and your children's. I plead earnestly with you to stay your hands, for why should you be willing to pay the price of eternal damnation in hell for the sake of a lowly sinner such as I? Jesus is the Christ, Son of the eternal living God. He died for sinners and rose to life for us. He is my king and the king of the whole earth yesterday, today, and forever. I am his servant, and I am imprisoned because of this. I will resist in meekness those who resist God, and I will joyfully violate all laws that violate God's law. The Lord's servant, Wang Yi. I don't know that we in the North American church are convinced enough that the world still needs transformation, that the world is still in desperate need of a savior. This is really happening right now. I mean, this man is really being persecuted and imprisoned right now for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because we live in such a free society in many senses, I don't think we consider 
the fact that real hard persecution is actually happening in the Church of Jesus Christ all over the world. And in the spirit of Christmas, in the spirit of what Christ came to do on this Christmas episode, we want to lift up this pastor who is embracing the Christ life really to his physical and social detriment as he is now imprisoned, and we don't know what is going to happen to him. We pray for him, but we don't know what his this outcome is going to be. I think that the heart of it is Mary's song in Luke chapter 1, that that in the midst of a, oppression and persecution, we still have hope that, that the story of Jesus and the story of him coming is what is the main story, the story. Um, there, there's all these sub-stories about governments, and I think he's very quick to point that out, that that God puts people in power for different purposes and different uses, but it doesn't change who I am, no matter which government I'm living in, no matter which ideology I currently find myself under. It shouldn't change. I love the line where he says, there's a thousand-year kingdom, but there's no thousand-year government. The governments come and go, but the kingdom of God yes. will be forever. There's a thousand-year church. Yeah, beautiful, yeah. Of, of just this picture of... And, and, and of, of of what is ultimately going to win the day. And it, sometimes it's hard to to flip on the news and think that God's kingdom is what's ultimately going to be the kingdom of the world that that truly, you know, as Handel's Messiah says that that the kingdoms of this world would become, you know, that that his kingdom, kingdom shall reign Lord. forever. Yeah. yeah. Um but I think that that as we live in the now and the not yet and we have this understanding of of what is going to happen that we have a hope that that no matter what we see and no matter what we may encounter, um, that that ultimately his kingdom will reign forever and ever. I think that it reminds me of Wesley's covenant prayer. Um, I don't know if you're familiar, but this whole understanding of if you need me to be big, then let me be big. If you need to bring me low, bring me low. Put me to what you will or push me aside. It's this this whole his prayer of saying, if this is what God needs me to do to reach people, then I'm willing to do whatever. Yeah. And I think that we struggle with that in the American church and the American society because Jesus promised persecution. We don't talk about it a whole lot in he our sure church, did. and and we don't like the thought of that. Um, but but he promised us that, they hey, they persecuted me, they did this to me, and if you follow me, it will also happen to you. It was promised. And... And what I love about his words, uh, the pastor's words, is he's really, like I said, trying to appeal not just to legislating morality, but how do we win the hearts of people that that's where real change is going to happen. It is obvious to me that this pastor is compelled by the Spirit of God. There is something just very anointed and very powerful about this letter. And I am going to you know, try to continue tracking with the Church International to see what happens. I'm going to continue to be praying for this pastor. His Calvinism definitely came out in this letter. There was definitely an attitude of um, God choosing the things that were going on here. And this is where I have a little bit different lens than this pastor. I'm not in a place to correct him necessarily. Sure. But I think that the, the question that I ask as someone who's an ocean away from him is... How do I play a part of this if God's making all of these decisions? And I think that that's where I would want to, if I were in a conversation with the pastor, challenge and encourage him to say that God created you and has filled you with his spirit. And really, the decisions that you're making 
inspired by his spirit are the things is are the decisions that are shaping the outcomes. Yes, God is actively involved, but you are you you are in this place with the freedom that you have to choose so that so that God's kingdom might come about. Um and that's this is the reason that Christians have been have decided to be a part of societal change in politics or um, in humanitarian ways and social ways is because we recognize that God has given us the freedom and the power to make a difference throughout the earth that we we are a part of we are of we are the vital part of bringing God's kingdom to earth and uh, there was a quote that we were talking about from Martin Luther King Jr that I think really captures the heart of human responsibility in these kind of situations. Yeah, and I think it, it really speaks to, once again, just this whole season and, and the incarnation and, and how do we how do we live that out? And, and like I said, I feel like sometimes, especially in the American church, we think if we can get the right legislation or the right people in power, then we're going to somehow figure this out. And, and, and Jesus, I don't think, died so that we could have the right laws in America. I think he died so that he could change our hearts. And, um, and I think we, we see what this pastor is going through. I think a big, you know, we could all point back to the civil rights movement. And Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. kind of speaks to this. And um, he has a quote, and it says this, Do to us what you will, and we will still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children. And as difficult as it is, we will still love you. But be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer, and one day we will win our freedom. We will not only win freedom for ourselves, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. And um, powerful that that he realized that the way we were really going to change America was not if we just changed the law, but we have to change the heart of, of people. And, and, and he would say that only Jesus can do that. And the way we do that is we suffer. We, we show them what it looks like to be the incarnation in the midst of where we find ourselves. And, and even as the pastor says, we're not going to, we're not going to obey your, your disrespectful laws to the kingdom. We're going to disobey them respectfully. Um, but in a, in a manner in which we, we show you the incarnation, we show you the love of God that is in us. And so, yes, if you need to throw us in jail, that's fine. We will submit. We will, we will respectfully disobey because we, will, we live for a different law, a higher law. And in so doing, we're going to appeal to your heart as you see us that, that we are, we're not going to fight back. We're not going to be uh, disrespectful, but in our ability to suffer and in our ability to submit in our suffering, we are going to win your heart, and then our, our victory will be double because you will change the laws because you'll see that we are equal. But in the same, in, in a bigger aspect, your heart will be changed, which really makes a difference for the kingdom and for the world as we see it. And really, I mean, that attitude is the attitude of Jesus in coming to us. I mean, this is Philippians 2. This is John 1. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. The Philippians 2 passage, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He took the very nature of a servant. And unfortunately, we've turned Christmas into a time of entitlement. But the spirit of Christmas ought to be the exact opposite. It ought to be the attitude of this pastor, the spirit of this pastor, 
that it's not about me, but my life was given to me in order that my that I might be a part of the great bringing about of the kingdom of God and the reign and the rule of Christ's lordship over the earth. As we wrap up this Christmas episode, uh, we, we pray for this pastor, uh, that God would give him strength, that God would give him an incredible amount of endurance and tenacity um, and incredible wisdom and shrewdness as he's dealing with these people. We pray that God would deliver him, but we join with him in, in praying the prayer of Jesus, hopefully with integrity, your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And hopefully, hopefully we don't look and say um, that poor pastor, because I don't think he would pity himself. I think he, he I don't seems think so. like he counts yeah. as, a, as an honor that as Philippians 3 says, yes. that participating in the suffering, that I become more like him and understanding more of who, who he's calling us to be. I think a lot of times, once again, we miss that aspect of, of what it means to really take up our cross and follow him. And so I don't I don't feel sorry for him. I want to join him. I, I don't look at him and think, man, his life would probably be so much better if he lived in America. Uh, I look at him and think, he may understand what it means to stand for God better than I do, better than I ever have, because it's actually costing him something. It's costing him everything. And and so I, I lift him up. But I pray for courage, and I pray for wisdom, and I pray that God would embolden him, and that God would would raise up the church around him, and that even when they are staring persecution and suffering in the face, that God would give them a witness, that that people once again would hear this story and be emboldened, um, understanding that once again in this baby in a manger, we see what it looks like to to really... um, call power into question and how we can best do that to the best of our ability. And I think that's what songs like Oh Little Town of Bethlehem, I think that's what songs like Silent Night, it's it's this in the midst of what the, the Jewish people would have thought would have been the worst living situation being oppressed by the Romans, that's when Messiah chooses to enter into their midst. The Evangelicals podcast is recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio. 